Hello, and welcome to the JNA podcast for the April 2020 issue of JNA. My name is Dr. Jacqueline Morano, Neurosurgical Anesthesiology Chief out of the University of Chicago. On behalf of the Training Engagement Committee, I will be presenting a summary from the April issue of the Journal of Neurosurgical Anesthesiology, Volume 32, Number 2, pages 156 to 161. This month's article is titled, Speckle Tracking Analysis of Left Ventricular Systolic Function Following Traumatic Brain Injury, a Pilot Prospective Observational Cohort Study by Drs. Monica Vavilala, Vija Krishnana Murthy, and colleagues. What do you know about this topic is that systolic dysfunction and reduction in left ventricular ejection fraction have been documented after traumatic brain injury, otherwise known as TBI. Speckle tracking is an emerging technology for myocardial strain assessment, which has been utilized to identify subclinical myocardial dysfunction and is most commonly reported as global longitudinal strain, otherwise known as GLS. What is new is that this article examines myocardial strain and regional strain patterns following moderate to severe traumatic brain injury through the use of speckle tracking analysis. <clears throat> TBIs are the leading cause of death and disability following trauma. Early myocardial injury and systolic dysfunction is being increasingly recognized following moderate to severe TBI and is postulated to be due to systemic inflammation and catecholamine excess after injury. This systolic dysfunction is associated with early hemodynamic instability after TBI and may contribute to cerebral hypoperfusion and therefore poor outcome. Left ventricular ejection fraction is still a measure of cardiac function. However, advances in cardiac imaging, such as speckle tracking, have led to earlier detection of subclinical systolic dysfunction. Speckle tracking, and now, speckle tracking allows for measurement of myocardial motion, including global longitudinal strain, known as GLS. GLS is more sensitive than left ventricular ejection fraction in detecting systolic dysfunction. This could lead to earlier interventions which would improve hemodynamics in the traumatic brain injury patient. This study is a prospective study comparing GLS with left ventricular ejection fraction over the first week in the moderate to severe TBI patient. It was a pilot prospective optional cohort study among moderate to severe TBI patients using age and sex matched healthy controls as a comparison. It was conducted at Harborview Medical Center in Washington State. Patients were screened for a diagnosis of isolated moderate to severe TBI with CT evidence and Glasgow Coma Scale less than or equal to 12 after resuscitation. Patients excluded included those over the age of 65, history of cardiac arrest, known ischemia or structural cardiac disease, and those with severe medical comorbidities. The control group consisted of healthy age and sex-matched faculty and staff at Harborview. Transthoracic echoes were performed by certified anesthesiologist intensivists within the first day after injury and were repeated at seven days. Systolic function was assessed with left ventricular ejection fraction using the Simpson method and dysfunction was defined as a left ventricular ejection fraction less than 50%. A complete longitudinal strain analysis was performed to determine both GLS and regional strain. Systolic dysfunction in this criteria was defined as a GLS greater than or equal to negative 16%. 30 subjects were collected, 15 with moderate to severe TBI and 15 healthy age sex match control subjects. Descriptive statistics were used to examine demographic, clinical, radiographic, and echocardiographic parameters. 
They use the student t-test and chi-square test for the comparison of continuous and categorical variables. Dependent t-tests were used to examine longitudinal changes in GLS scores. For the results, 30 subjects were recruited, 15 with TBI, and 15 healthy comparisons. The mean age of the recruits were 43 years of age, and 73% were male. None were on chronic medications, and only one had hypertension. Falls and motor vehicle accidents accounted for the majority, 40%, of primary injury mechanism. All patients had evidence of intracranial bleed on admission head CT. The cohort consisted of primarily severe TBI with mean admission Glasgow coma scores of 5, plus or minus 2.8. Of this cohort, many required critical care interventions, including vasopressors, 33%, ICP monitoring, 40%, and mechanical ventilation, 87%. Regarding 2D dimensional echo, the left ventricular diastolic dimension and volume were similar in the TBI and control group. The left ventricular volume in systole was smaller in the TBI group compared to the control, 41.9 versus 59.6%, with a p-value of 0.03. But the mean EF did not differ between the TBI and the control groups, with a p-value of 0.57. Two patients with moderate to severe TBI had systolic dysfunction with left ventricular ejection fractions less than 50%, compared to zero in the control group. In terms of diastolic parameters, Pope wave Doppler-derived E-wave velocity did not differ in patients with moderate to severe TBI or the control group, with a p-value of 0.24. But the A-wave velocity was higher in the group with the moderate to severe TBI versus the control group, 67.7% versus 22.7%. I'm sorry, 67.7% versus 40.6%, with a p-value of 0.001. Despite this, the E-wave to A-wave ratios were similar between the groups with a p-value of 0.13. While the majority of the tissue Doppler parameters did not differ between the groups, the lateral mitral annual A-prime velocity was higher in the moderate to severe TBI group compared with the control group, 13 versus 7.8, respectively, with a p-value of 0.003. For speckle tracking echoes, the GLS was significantly worse in the group with TBI compared to the control negative 16.4% versus 20.7%. Using GLS, there was a higher proportion of patients with systolic dysfunction in the TBI group compared to the control, 38% versus 0%. Within the regional strain maps for the TBI patient, the abnormal strain was noted in the base and midventricular segments. Apical segments had preserved function. There was no improvement in GLS from day one to day seven in the TBI cohort with a p-value of 0.81, nor was there improvement in the group with healthy, nor was there improvement in the group with initial impairment GLS with a p-value of 0.38. Among the four patients with impaired systolic function at baseline, that being defined as a GLS greater than negative 16%, who were hospitalized for more than a week, two, 50%, improved to normal systolic function by seven days after injury. So the findings, many of the findings of the pilot study, the main findings, excuse me, of the pilot study are one, myocardial strain abnormalities are common following moderate to severe TBI. Two, GLS is more sensitive than left ventricular ejection fraction in detecting early systolic dysfunction after TBI. Three, these GLS findings persist even at one week following a TBI. And four, the myocardial strain seen following TBI is primarily basal and midventricular dysfunction. 
Cycle tracking analysis has been used in other critical care illnesses, such as sepsis, for early identification of impaired systolic function. In the present pilot study, 38% of patients with moderate to severe TBI had evidence of impaired GLS within one day compared to the 17% who showed impaired left ventricular ejection fraction. These strain abnormalities persisted over the first week of hospitalization. The critical relevance of this is, is that it shows a high burden of subclinical systolic dysfunction. Through use of GLS, the cardiac dysfunction may be more common than observed in prior studies with the use of less sensitive echocardiography. Thus, cardiac dysfunction should and can be included in the differential diagnosis of the TBI patient who develops hypotension early after initial injury. There are, however, several limitations in this study, including one, intervention in the care of patients may have altered loading conditions in the heart. Two, it's a very small sample size, which may result in some compounding. Three, it's impossible to completely exclude prior underlying cardiac dysfunction. Four, optimal values for strain in the critical care setting are not clearly defined. Five, seven days may not be a sufficient amount of time to observe full recovery of cardiac strain after the initial injury. And six, there is little prior data on cardiac strain after a neurological injury, and larger studies need to be completed. This article adds to the literature of stress cardiomyopathies following neurological injury. Although the underlying pathophysiologic mechanism is not completely understood, it likely involves catecholamine excess and systemic, in and systemic inflammation. These injuries take time to resolve, and more research needs to be conducted in this area. That concludes the journal article of the month podcast. Thank you for joining me and have a great day.